Hector's uh, friend. He's uh, been coming to MIT many times. Uh, he's uh, a he works in uh, wonderful, rich areas of inquiry. Uh, he's associate professor at uh, in media studies and production at uh, Temple University's School of Media and Communication, where he teaches and writes about video game culture, labor in digital networks and privacy and copyright on the social web. He's the co-founder of the blog culturedigitally.org. You can get that, uh, culturedigitally.org. And most recently, the author of The Digital Rights Movement, The Role of Technology in Subverting Digital Copyright. And this is a book from MIT Press. He's also the co-editor of managing privacy through accountability from Palgrave Press, and his research is funded by the National Science Foundation and the European Commission. Uh, by the way, I forgot to mention who I am. I assume everybody, <laughs> not everybody does. I'm Jim Parity. I'm current head of uh, Comparative Media Studies. Uh, Hector's going to talk uh, on the subject uh, cultural production and social media as Capture Platforms, How the Matrix Has You. Hector? So good evening. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you to Jim, uh, to T.L. Taylor, who's not here today. Uh, she's traveling at Redmond, I guess. Um, and uh, to the students in the program at CMS. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I've benefited a lot from the work that's come out of this excellent program, and so I hope that folks can um, that what I say today will benefit you in some way, or at least mildly entertain you for 40 or 45 minutes or so. Um, I'll give you a bit of background as a, before I go into this talk, and, and maybe you'll understand why I'm, it's ironically on Twitter, because I'm about to just deploy a, lo a lot of sort of political economy saying it's all evil. Uh, uh, so this is based primarily on work sort of a, a work that I've been doing for the past seven years. Uh, when I started considering the political economy, the kinds of labor that happens online, um, the, I started, uh, and I was reminded today that I, I started writing about AOL not so long ago about labor uh, and seeing volunteers as labor. So that's when it began when I was in graduate school. And that thinking about the political economy of digital environments has continued in the last six years. Um, I'm now working on a book on YouTube and video game commentators uh, and how their hobby transitions into, uh, into a professionalization of, of um, what amounts to leisure. It becomes professional leisure in a lot of ways. Uh, also, that's related to work I've done on uh, the stuff that uh, Jim mentioned funded by the National Science Foundation on Web 2.0 technologies and uh, the use of, um, I guess, Web 2.0. I hate using that term, but, you know, social web type architectures for um, deployed by social movements, by uh, social change organizations, and how that shapes, right, that logic of that architecture shapes the process of activism or of making the world a better place, let's say, right? So I'm going to... I'm going to talk theoretically, right? I'm going to propose a lot of sort of 
what will appear like opinions, <laughs> um, but uh, rest assured that it is uh, ref it reflects a body of research that's been ongoing, empirically grounded, and also in conversation with a lot of uh, work that is being done uh, in this field, both um, some some of it here uh, and some of it by graduates from from CMS uh, and. Uh, some of it by people that we host on, on culture digitally. Uh, and I do that with Tarleton Gillespie, who's uh, uh, at Cornell University. So he, um, he's a, a great uh, collaborator. So let me, let me begin. Uh, so when I was a graduate student uh, in STS in Science and Technology Studies um, at RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, uh, we read Langdon Winner's Do Artifacts Have Politics? Has anyone ever read that? Oh, great. Yes. All right. So uh, that's an excerpt from his book, The Whale and the Reactor. Um, so if you're not familiar with that piece, uh, it's often remembered for its analysis of bridges, right? Or more accurately, overpasses, right? Uh, and so Langdon's telling of it notes that the bridges were built too low for public transportation to pass, right? So buses couldn't get through these bridges that were built over the road going to Jones Beach, New York, right? Um, and in so being built in this way, they fixed in material artifice the divisions of race and class. That was the general argument of the most remembered example of that, right? It turns out that Professor Winner was wrong about the height of those overpasses. They were, in fact, historical researchers went back and found that the overpasses were, in fact, tall enough for buses to pass through. <clears throat> But I don't think he was wrong about the example, right? About what that, that framework said about the power of technology, right? To reproduce power relations. So despite the historical inaccuracy, that was still correct. Um, the often not remembered example is the one of nuclear reactors and nuclear power in American society. Do you guys remember, does anybody who's read that article remember that particular example? No, you do not, see, because no one ever, you remember. Okay, so one out of the six, so we're, we're batting about less than 20%, which is. So in that particular example, the less remembered example, Langdon poses that some technologies are inherently political and that their adoption by society necessitates, as a consequence of their externalities, a reconfiguration of a social order. Um, that was a pretty deterministic thing to say, right? His argument was that as American society adopted something like nuclear power, a democratic society, they had to adopt systems of security and secrecy to accommodate that, right? Without which that reconfiguration of something as basic as a tenet of democracy, openness, that particular technological system could not have existed for long. So on the one hand, let me just move my notes down. On the one hand, the bridge is pointed to the power of technology to reproduce, right? Power relations in society. And the example of nuclear power, the power, uh, the uh, um, effect of technology to uh, reconfigure a social order. Let me take my sip of my way caffeinated coffee. Wow. All right. So for argument's sake, I'm going to advance these two very deterministic positions but I am going to balance them off with a little bit of social construction like any good STS person should, right? Uh, so I bring to you reflections on the social web and its architecture. 
that are, on the one hand, rooted in the determinism of bridges that were ultimately tall enough, but social architecture nonetheless, and, on the other hand, rooted in a limited view of constructivism that acknowledges agency, but also that there are some limits upon it, right? I ultimately want to advocate a critical engagement with social media uh, and the platforms that ground it. Right? A questioning of technology that transcends the exuberance to upload first and ask questions later. I'm not calling for a revolution, but maybe evolution, a change in the way we approach social media, uh, and that recognizes its multiple purposes, right? It's, that engages it judiciously, and that advocates for a mindful grappling with its affordances and the ideologies that underlie it. I'm hoping we could do all of that at the same time, which may be a tall order. Oh, who knows? So <clears throat> before moving forward, I'm going to state the obvious, and I hope it is obvious, and if not, wow, news. Facebook doesn't exist to make us all better friends. Uh, Twitter doesn't buzz our cell phones so that social movements and repressive regimes will have a ready outlet, right? Google isn't doing evil because it's the nice thing to do, and YouTube really isn't about you. These platforms, through their technological features, may allow many practices for users, but market logic has shown one constant since the internet became a driver in modern economies, that as soon as the exuberance fades, investors are going to want to see the money. The investment is going to have to pay off. And if a for-profit venture that invests in, so in the socialist commodity wishes to survive past its IPO, it had better provide a business plan that effectively provides the cash. That business plan, as I see it, is rooted in the concepts of capture and conversion. These two concepts are going to drive the rest of the talk, and I'm going to spend the rest of the time unpacking them. Any questions so far? Anything? No? Okay. Let's yes? Oh. All right. How about... I can put it on my nose. Right. How about now? Is it any better now? I think the problem is I'm wearing this woolly sweater. Uh, let me get it as high as I can, maybe. Okay, how about now? A little bit? Okay. Yeah, if it, if it starts to fade, please let me know. Okay. Next. That's creepy. Uh, hope no one's arachnophobic here. So I propose that social media, things like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc., and their attendant features, surrogates, and agents fix social practice and medium and thus serve as capture platforms. Capture involves recruitment. That's one facet right there, that part of the web. Fixation of, uh, well, recruitment, right? And the recruitment happens through invitation, coercion and conscription. Concepts I'll unpack some more. Two, fixation of that, uh, of that conscription, of that, of that uh, recruitment. And what's recruited is cultural production, by the way, the things that we do, right? Then it's fixation of that production as a process or object. And three, conversion of, of that which has been fixed into value of some sort of or, or another. Now, let me talk a little bit about that. 
Uh, features. What do I mean by features? These can be things like status updates, uh, like buttons, comments, right? The actual things, the, the things, the technological features of, a, of any social media platform, right? I'm thinking Facebook, but also Twitter or Tumblr or whatever. Um, but there are, these features are also have extensions, right? So they leave the platform of the web and become things like cell phones, right? Cell phone towers, Wi-Fi networks, right? I think these are features of a capture platform by extension. Um, they're surrogates. They serve as surrogates when they collect all this cultural production, and I guess I should define that sooner or later, maybe later. <laughs> um, when they do so passively, right? So they're surrogates of the platform when they're passively collecting data, like, for example, location-based data. There's sometimes always, there's always sort of getting pinged back to the home base, right? Unless you do your privacy settings, but sometimes even your privacy settings on some of these applications are not um, that clear. Um, they take the form of agents, these features, right? When uh, people themselves function as key operatives of the capture system, when human beings start doing the work of the machine. So much like Morpheus to Neo in The Matrix, I say to you, anyone can be an agent. <laughs> it's creepy stuff. All right. So the fact is that we move through spheres of capture, Right? Surveillance nets, yes, but also frames. So it's not static, right? What's being captured is process. So it's kind of like we're in a painting at, Harry, uh, at, at Hogwarts, right? It's framed in a certain way, but things are going on. I hope people have read Harry Potter. Um, and interpretation of what, what the captured means is open to the machinations of algorithm, right? Of computation, of someone's decision of what it all means. I'll explain that some more. So this is, yes, a kind of a negative and sad perspective on social media. And I understand that capture serves other functions as well. People bring different things to the platform uh, that, that, that they value in and of themselves. Um, but in this analysis, I focus on what tilts towards the political economy, right? So I'm going to remain critical and skeptical. So let me unpack capture a little bit more. And these images are supposed to sort of capture the, scent, the element of what I'm saying. Let's hope it does. You can tell me later if I've, if I've visually represented the, the soul of the slide. Um, by capturing the social cultural, social media platforms create a political economy of self, of community, and of social processes. Cultural production here is not seen as the rendering of just the rendering of pop culture or high culture, but of the self as cultural product, as an artifact in market. Social web platforms use capture as the central means for building inventory. They invite us to contribute and then collect our tweets, our pictures, our locations, our random thoughts that we just spill out. We are the inventory, like no other facet of the web. These kinds of platforms remind us of what's been part of the web for, since the beginning. It's kind of like a celestial capture card with an infinite capacity, right? It's capturing everything and storing it. The implications are widespread. Capture platforms have the capacity to engulf in their calculus the willing, the unwilling, our privacy, our creativity, our friends, our communities. I want to make clear that I'm not, my view is not monolithic necessarily. We don't live life in the web, right? We live part of life in the web, and we don't live in it. We live kind of through it, right? So it's not that all of our sphere, all spheres of sociality are captured, just portions of it, little bits. 
Um, also, it's not just one platform, it's many platforms working together, what T.L. Taylor, uh, one of your faculty, would call a bricolage. Right? I like that term, she uses it a lot. Right? I'm, I'm totally stealing it. Um, so it's not, Capture's not the function of one platform, right? It's a, it's a network of platforms. So let me give you the origin story where all this thinking, where I started putting it all together. You can go ahead and read that tweet to yourselves and then chuckle because maybe you felt this way once or twice. So not long ago, I'm sitting having a beer with a friend of mine at a conference and I made this joke, right? Um, and she thought it was really funny. So she tweeted it to 1,200 followers and the, and the conference hashtag. Um, I was mortified, to say the least. I thought, I, I thought well, what now? Um, and the reason I was mortified even more later on was because I, then I was asked to be the program chair for this conference, for the upcoming one. So not only am I, so I, you know, I, this is a conference I've been going to for 10 years. I love this conference. It's one of my, it's my people. Uh, and so I wasn't trying to trivialize. I was just making a joke. You know, it's kind of funny, right? Um, but I looked, at, I looked at her doing this, you know, and she's like, that was funny. I just tweeted it. And it was the first time anything I'd ever said also been tweeted. So I felt kind of like a loser. I had to wait till like 2010 for, get, to get tweeted. I mean, like, Shouldn't I have said something tweetable before? Um, but I looked at her, and I, and, I, and I thought to myself, the Matrix has me, right? Um, and then I said, and you're its agent. Uh, don't worry, we're still friends. Uh, I'm still friends with her, but she made me think. I'm going to talk a little bit about recruitment, because as I reflected on that moment, I wondered, how was I invited to participate in this network, right? in Twitter, in her practice, right? Was I invited? Or was I pressured by the fact that so many people were already on it? Was there something coercive about its triangulation upon me, right? How was she an agent of the system? How had she become an extension of it, a collector, right? And then, if she was an agent, where was my agency? How did I get to decide to be part or not part of that moment? Oh, so let me go back. I'm going to start with elements of recruitment, invitation, coercion, and then agents. Okay. So, capture is both a technical and a social problem, right? An invitation is one way of addressing it. How do you build technologies that efficiently and easily allow any user, young, older, in North America, South America, Africa, Europe, to quickly and efficiently capture elements of, or facets of social life. And obviously I'm talking about networks whose penetration is widespread, right? So post-industrial nations, industrialized nations, but increasingly industrializing nations as well. The technical answer to the problem is not necessarily one that a single designer or technology company can provide, but like I said, it's one that is provided by a host of Designers, a host of corporations that together triangulate a matrix, right? A network that, in aggregate, create a generally persistent, right? Pervasive and present system. So, to me, that persistence, that pervasiveness, that presence of that system, right, is part of that invitation. It is what I experienced that day having a beer with my friend. It's presence, it's pervasiveness, living in her practice through her phone. 
So in conjunction with this pervasiveness, this presentness, right, together with social practices, the system has an affective outcome. Users become open to seeing it as an alternative, as a means for engaging in communicative practices. A capture system's presence invites, first through its relative everywhereness, and then through its quiet whispers, that like button at the end of that article you just read, or that product you just bought online, that vibration of your phone in your pocket, that ding, that bell, our 21st version of you got mail, right? Something calls to us. We are through these simple cues reminded that, on, that not only is the platform on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but that our buddies, our friends, our communities are there calling to us. I love this picture. Um, but pervasiveness is not enough for an architecture to invite. It must also have a meaning through the types of communication practices that are invited, right, and that are discovered by users. Invitation relies on technology to afford a certain level, a certain kinds of practices, but also has to be open to experimentation and playfulness, right? It has to be plastic or plasticity. I used to be a neurobiologist, so plasticity was, you know, when the neurons can adjust, right? Um, dendrites. Anyway, that's a different story. So, um, invitation is bounded by rules and openness so that social, and by openness, so that social practices and experimentations can squeeze into capture. I like this picture. I think it represents that because, you know, if you have one of those philosophy 101 moments, is the ball suspended in front of the boys or are the boys suspended in front of the ball, right? Or are they suspended in front of each other? The ball sort of is their orbit. They're orienting themselves to it, right? Um, openness, this, then, is the social portion of invitation. But like any open invitation, boundaries exist, sometimes subtle, other times overt, which then configure how we respond. The way the machine is mirror, mirror on the wall, right? The way it communicates to us our potential to participate and then configures rewards, turns us towards it. As my friend Tarleton Gillespie would say, we orient ourselves to the algorithm. We are seduced by it, right? This is my conceptualization of the plasticity of invitation, right? Something about it is bounded, but yet something about it invites us to play, to revolve around it, to explore and it rewards us for these kinds of experimentation. Let us not forget the power of design, the power of cool. I always think of the iPhone when I reflect on cool, right? Cool design. It's in, at least in my lifetime, the one moment where, even though I went to RPI and we were always thinking of design, is the one moment where I was like, oh wow, this is, this is categorically a different experience. It's sleekness. It's rapid penetration into the market. It's touchability. You just wanted to reach out and touch it and then not stop fiddling with it. It's connection to networked infrastructures and web platforms and other inviting technologies make arguments for capture, right? Now that we've snapped that image, why not share it online? Now that you've heard your friend make that funny joke, why not tweet it? Does that make sense so far? Is it, am I... 
Are you all in agreement? Anyway, I started thinking as I reflected about this about Henry David Thoreau. Go figure. Um, in the 19th century, Henry David Thoreau wrote, all men want, and men, obviously he was writing back then, but all people, right? But let's, let's not paraphrase Henry. Let's just quote. All men want, not, what, not something to do with, but something to do, or rather something to be. I'd argue that inviting technologies might show us something different. That through design, some technologies make what we do with integral to who we are. If what we do is what we are, if, our if we are our practices, then we must recognize that capture platforms and their networks are not only designed to functionally record or to serve a functional purpose, but are also rhetorical devices, making subtle but powerful arguments for being the best way of communicating, yes, but also the best way of being you, right? the best way of performing yourself. Invitation also implies the creation of a practice. In other words, while technology companies may strive to make capture convenient and efficient, social, practice of, social practices of capture must themselves be captured. So any given user may be a shutterbug, may be taking all kinds of images, but if that user never transfers that image to a platform, the value for the platform owner, at least, is lost. Right? So there has to be a capture of that practice somehow. It has to be incorporated. To meet this demand, pervasiveness, design, identity, playfulness are all deployed together, positioning social media as an attractive and likely place to carry, out, to carry on socially, both in traditional ways and in ways that are framed by technology. The argument here is that capture, practice, that capture practices are framed by capture systems as they provide the means for communication. In this case, the medium is the practice. Let me turn to coercion. While invitation is that slight break in personal space, that soft brush on the elbow, that smile, that flirtation, ultimately, that invites, coercion, obviously, is a little bit stronger, but can have its subtleties, especially when a platform is widely adopted. Anyone who's attempted to permanently delete their Facebook page, has anyone tried to do that? Forever, like the permanent deletion, not just quitting and then going back later. Okay, so I have permanently, I have gone through this very traumatic experience of deleting permanently my Facebook page. Obviously, I'm back. Um, can't escape it. Uh, but you have to rebuild your profile from scratch, right? You have to friend everyone again. You have to upload all your images, right? So Facebook gives you what is effectively a cooling off period, a small window of time where you can take it back, but after which, if you really hit the go button, it's never coming back. I tried, believe me, because I had, you know, I called them up and I said, no, it's gone. You hit the go button. Um, so the process involved for me a parade of images of my friend's children. And the question was posed by Mark Zuckerberg, well, no, but by him through his, right, through his machine, are you really going to leave them? Literally, my, my friend's kids, right? The quandary of leaving a community that had come to depend on me, or at least my presence, right? Maybe they didn't know I was a friend even, but at least I was there in the spectrum of friends, right? I was part of their cachet, right? Was framed as abandonment. Coercion and capture is a sort of social force, right? An inertia that manifests itself in aggregate, in the capture system's inescapability, in its functional utility, in its usefulness to us, but also 
and ultimately the moral question it may ask of us if we try to leave. I turn to conscription, right? Conscription, the involuntary induction of cells into the service of the platform, is a function of capture as its logic becomes social practice. Except now. Upload, upload, upload. But to where? And why and what? The technological problem of capture becomes a bioware problem of habit most banal and dangerous. Maybe dangerous, right? You guys know habit is dangerous, right? It becomes like second nature. That's when you know you're in trouble, when something is second nature. A practice that is valuable, right? Situated within a social framework, your friends, right? You're, you're part of this social network platform. It's valuable, right? You're making friends, you're sustaining community. Becomes a case of function creep as conscription occurs. What starts off as friending, tweeting, network building becomes a collection of inventory by hook or by crook for Google or Google. The notion of agents in capture plays a particularly important part in conscription. First, by describing the adoption of a posture, an effect that sees the social as if perched upon a hill, possessed of all this kinetic energy, that all you have to do is click that button, and it will be unleashed into the network, and it will have new meanings, right? It will enter into the social. The agent, then, is a bridge or a conduit between online practice and social practice, and I think, ultimately, a realization that the division is a as a fallacy in some instances, right? We are captured. The platform asks, is it tweetable? And so do we. Often the answer is yes, and off it goes, like my little quib, right? But it isn't really that simple if all the research on social network platforms should amount to any one general conclusion. is this, that through social media, we perform a host of actions which are always in conversation with mores, norms, laws, rules, computational or social. If the agent is a bridge, then the trick is designing agents, and the trick in designing agents is not to have them ask themselves a question like, is it tweetable? But in designing practices where tweetability is a given. Right? That's an important distinction. The question is not even asked. It is second nature, right? It's no wonder, then, that we are always at, we're asking ourselves today about privacy, online or offline, or what it means, nagged by the feeling that whatever it is, it must be something new, a set of practices intimating multiple privacies, a commodity intimating an exchange relationship with our fellows and the social web platform owners. Ultimately, I think we're practicing a new privacy. I think that's true, right? I think the research is showing that. But that new privacy is part of a, kind of a part of a new social order that we must adopt or else the technological system, the social network, will fail. So can you hear Langdon Winner, right? And the nuclear reactor sort of echoing through that. Um, but privacy is not the only thing caught up in the calculus of the political economy of digital cultural production. Identity, community, citizenship, participation. What is Organic, right? The Nautilus right there. What is organic about us as humans is already 
data, right? Or ready to be data. Conscription then endangers agency and the place of our will in the interchange of information about us and from us. We feel it most when we discover that we've been aggregated in some way by our cell phone companies, right? Or our cell phone carriers, Verizon is aggregating all our data, change in privacy settings. Um, our images, our emails, our tags, we're all collated and a deeper knowledge about ourselves is now known when the collection of our incidental data, our mutterings, our stutterings are made big data through the algorithms that call into its gaping cavernousness and draw forth cells we didn't even know, right? Information that was triangulated in a different way. Let me move on to fixation. What happens when you've captured all this stuff? The fixing process is important to me theoretically because it's a cross-cutting term. Fixing suggests that capture is not just a matter of direct representation or just accumulation, but of representation and accumulation in a particular way. Right? It's fixed in a particular way. So in so much as platforms, and this is T.S. Eliot, by the way, and this is like, I love this quote from T.S. Eliot. Take a moment to read it. I'll read it. When I am formulated sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways, and how should I presume? It's the idea that we don't have a footnote, right? We may, someone may tell the story for us, and we may not necessarily be able to tell the story. All right, so let me, that's, that was the inspiration for this. So in so much as platforms or networks or, or networks of platforms capture and fix, they do so in a certain way. In as much as they afford users the ability to do a number of things they, and capture a host of content, fixing processes frame content in particular ways. Formats, character limits, filters, etc. are the most evident elements of fixation, but also such things as the arrangements of that content on an interface, right? the way things are performed, uh, posted, what gets to be posted or shows up or what doesn't, the exclusion of content, and the pl platform's triangulation of its fixing processes with laws like copyright, right, norm, and business goals. There's a good amount of work being done, I think, to interrogate fixation. Uh, Microsoft Research, the folks at Microsoft Research, I think, are doing a great, a great job. Uh, the people that we host, at, uh, some of the folks that we host on our blog, Culture Digitally, it's open to folks. Just email me, and we, we, we can have a conversation about it if you have thoughts on this. Uh, Tarleton Gillespie and I host some folks. That's a shameless plug. Also some folks from CMS. So it's also a shameless plug, but an honest reference as to the kinds of good work that's going on. Things that get interrogated include um, normativity, right? neoliberal ideologies and architectures, big data, social practice and the politics of algorithms. All this work is really empirically rich and theoretically diverse, uh, and I would recommend you, you scope it out if you find this interesting. For me, these are, there are some things left to be explored, obviously. Uh, that's how you do it, right? You set it up. It's good work's being done, but there's more to be done. Uh, so for me, there's more work to be done. Um, about the fixation process specifically. For me, I think of estrangement. Uh, for one thing, it's not often discussed, right? We sometimes rightly celebrate the opportunities that social network platforms or social media platforms afford us to communicate, to represent ourselves, right? Uh, but often forget about those odd moments when we, uh, when we see the captured self fixed on that platform and like, again, T.S. Eliot's proof rock, turn to it and say that's not what I meant at all. 
That's not it at all, right? There's this element of estrangement. I had this feeling recently when I saw that, recently, well, not recently, but when the timeline, Facebook put up that timeline, right? And it just kind of linearly organized your history uh, in images and updates and such. And I thought, certainly my history is a matter of data, but not my narrative, right? It's a machine's narrative of my history. Um, it's a sort of an unauthorized biography. And I felt estranged. And then I thought about it, and I th- sometimes there is an element of estrangement when you look at what you've put together yourself, right? The way it's been put together, you've changed, and you look at that, back on that, right? And it's an artifact to you. But maybe this is the lesser, a lesser issue. Fixation on the back end is what troubles me most. How are we configured by algorithms based on logics that had ultimately little to do with us as human beings? How are we data? Despite the dynamism of social media, of streams of text, constant updates, ever-changing videos and images, fixation ensures a certain type of suspension of action. Yes, what Dana Boyd has called permanence, but I think more accurately, a permanence that signals a certain kind of political economy, a certain kind of agency behind the machine that wants to make capture a practice, not merely a consequence of technical structure rendered ex nihilo, networked publics, yes, but also networked products, networked markets. Fixation in biology requires the use of chemical agents, right, to make chemical bonds between the amino acids that make up a protein and other molecules in a cell, like sulfide bonds. Uh, And so it stops in its tracks the denaturation of proteins, right, The, the, the breakdown of the structure of life. But it also kills, right? Nothing, if it's fixed, it's not alive. It's the literal pinning down of organic life so that it may be examined. Fixation through algorithm renders the social, the person, or the group as object in process, harnessable for markets, for governments, and for corporations. I'm not exactly saying that we're losing our souls in the back end of Facebook, but I don't know exactly what's happening to it. There is a tension in fixation, though. Fixed slices of time and life matter as reducible data sets, but on the other hand, the system must be plastic enough, again, plasticity, to accommodate new data sets, status updates on the status updates on you, right? Plasticity is a conversation between the dynamic nature of human and the more bounded or relatively more bounded nature of data between the evolving, the living, the dying, and the fixed Ultimately, decisions made, about bounded, made on bounded data endure beyond the instant and impact already changed circumstances. They live on, right? 30 seconds, five days, when the circumstances have already changed. Herein, we might find room for resistance in the lag between the fixed and the living, where noise, randomness, and messiness will hopefully confound the algorithm, and it will, at last, only provide impressions, right? Again, T.S. Eliot. God, I love T.S. Eliot. So now, conversion, the last part of this construct. So fixation sets up the context for conversion, the transformation of all that is known, all that is framed into elements of exchange economies. It creates the political economy of participation, of creativity, of the self as a cultural product. It is evident both at the front end and the back end of social media platforms. Let's talk about 
the front end. So specifically, conversion is that function of a social media platform, of social media, really, and their extensions that translate fixed inventory to value. The, argu the argument here is that at the user level, social processes fixed in social media afford an understanding of what's going on. They translate for users a reality of place, time, outcomes, and possibilities. For platform designers, the trick is conveying value in a way that is both socially sensed and procedurally acceptable by the user base that is situated, something that people can recognize as valuable to themselves, and they do not feel estranged by it. Right? For users, technical solutions provided by platforms take the shape of feedback systems. Communication features that allow users to respond to one another's participation or to the platform's um, questions, right? They're begging of your participation. Not simply to say something back, but to perform a narrative, right? Made up of a literacy of text, images, video, all creatively assembled on a canvas that was made by the platform, right? That was designed by the business model. So research has taught us a lot about the social dynamics of these systems. Economies of popularity, of tribe, identity are all there at play, like flying parts of a crazy coreless engine. But feedback, feedback systems do more than just ensure a social process and just afford it. They reify it. I took this in Rome. Has anyone ever seen this in, in the flesh, more or less? It's a phenomenal sculpture. Yes, yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? I had to stop. My family had to move on. I think I cried. Um, reification, to reify, right? To make real or concrete that which is abstract. In their reification function, feedback systems make visible and record the social. They literally allow users to see agony, strife, reciprocity, attention economies, popularity, not only that, but the reification function creates the architecture by which value can be derived from these processes. It becomes a material proof of what may be the case outside the platform, thus giving users a sense that social capital, status, meaning, or popularity are all being properly assigned outside the platform. Right? So they kind of act like a wingman or a wingwoman. Right? They're social proof. Social media then can serve as a litmus for the status quo. Everything is as it should be. That's one function. But they may also change the status quo to make this point more concrete. Think of something as everyday as popularity at work or at school. If a person should be able to import it into the platform, reifying it through a feedback system, whatever that may look like in a particular architecture, then it's possible that it may increase within the platform, but also outside of it, right? For someone without much popularity or success, who then is able to build it within the social media platform, it may well translate to external consequences. The platform in that case serves as a form of social boost, not proof. I've seen this on my research on YouTube, when relatively awkward young boys who are playing video games, who love the video games so much, come into that particular space and build essentially a media empire um, and then develop what well, Alice Marwick has called micro-celebrity, right? And it translates into real-world outside consequences. 
But they're not always positive, right? It, there's a lot of ugly, and they could be very negative as well. So conversion through feedback also creates an architecture for reciprocity, for trust, performance, participation, alliances. Conversion and its methods are, te- are the technological solutions to the accounting of social dynamics and their performance. By creating ways in which users can see, read, hear, and feel the social, and by creating architectures by which those inputs can be responded to, they convert participation into situated value for the user, something they recognize is valuable to themselves. Here's an example. What you see here is YouTube justice. It's not as exciting as one would think. This is coming from my research now. Uh, it's an example of reification that yields a social, community-driven, and understood sense of value and what is valuable. Right? This user, raw instinct, was accused by this user, iFly, of stealing content. Uh, the community, through a review of evidence in the form of other videos and supporting videos, you know, one of these uh, moments of strife, found him guilty and punished him with a loss of subscribers. Notice, a decrease in 8,000, nearly 10,000 subscribers. It got worse as the day wore on uh, in a matter of 24 hours, right? And this is a potentially costly tax, uh, uh, both social, on, bo- on social and monetary capital, because some of these folks have tons of subscribers and they're making, making money off of their channels, right? Conversely, the community rewarded the offended user with an explosion of subscribers. He got, he was at, he got 26,000 subscribers in that 48-hour period or 24-hour period. Perhaps most importantly, the whole process of the allocation of justice was recorded in real time not only by YouTube, right, where you can see sort of your subs just leaving you, right, in real time, but by third-party applications that aggregate that information. The vested elements of the YouTube community, through their various comments and other videos, saw justice done. It was reified to them, right? It was YouTube justice, whatever that may mean, but it was a value. The system made it possible. They saw it. So by now, it should come as no surprise that value lives on multiple levels in social media platforms. On the one hand, hand, YouTube users derived situated value from the conversion of subscribers into something like justice, right? The numbers showed the reality. Something had happened. But how does the social media platform convert for profit? For social network businesses or social media businesses bent on social or socially created as their central value driver, inventory, you, me, our interactions and our creations, must be parsed by mechanisms that allow us and ours to be sold. Right? These mechanisms usually take the shape of systems, algorithms, that analyze and repackage. Typically, these are back-end structures hitting from view, but ultimately, the market value of a social media web business hinges on that algorithm and what it's going to do with that fixed content. So I often reflect on Facebook's um, sort of less than stellar IPO. Yeah, NASDAQ kind of dropped the ball. But also there was, a, and continues to be, right, a level of uncertainty about what Facebook is doing with all, that, all those users. How are they going to capitalize them on them? What's their model, ultimately? So generating value for social media businesses 
is both a technical and social problem. Technically, the right algorithms must be designed to execute analysis and aggregation that will suit customers, typically advertisers. As a social problem, markets must create must be created and sustained. Labor forces kept working. That's you and me, kept tweeting, liking, posting, right? And incentivized. People must see the situated value of their products through conversion so that they keep doing it, so that the platform can do its own conversion. Yes, as Tarleton Gillespie would say, algorithms have a socially contingent, a socially contingent nature that impacts the way, the way in which they speak about what is valuable, but I think... I think if you're thinking about the value embedded in algorithms, right, and how they allow us to, and how that thinking might allow us to see the politics of algorithms, it may also benefit us to think about their economics, not only as a value, but as a logic for understanding what is the case. So, what an algorithm says about a group, individual, or any bit of information on a platform is concerned with value, value both in the long term and in the short term. The algorithm may suggest a trend, as Twitter does, but as it constructs a trend, it also builds value. Trending as a measurable process is an exercise in some form of measurement, opinion, popularity, increasing rates of interest, whatever, but it's also a stab at creating value. It's an attempt to convert all that chatter into something that can be sold to investors, to media businesses, and to users. The interesting thing is that the more one considers what an algorithm is telling us, the more one realizes that for some platforms, trending of any sort on Twitter or YouTube is a sure bet. This is not to suggest that outputs are necessarily biased towards what's going to sell or what amounts to more profitable, right? But rather that the process of analysis and aggregation and its claims to truthfulness about whatever information was processed is done in the first place because it is perceived to be valuable. No one would have asked what is trending, right, or is it trending, unless someone else had first asked, can we sell trending? The value placed on the outcome of an algorithm is as much based on its accuracy, whatever that may be, as it is on having users see it as accurate. And when they are in the orbit of that system, having them handed over a series of information, it doesn't matter if you saw it as accurate or not. It's all data, ultimately, right? Whether you agreed with the search outcome or not, that's data. Because economic value is part of the equation, our social processes, our identities, ourselves become functional artifacts, means to ends for social media and their owners. This is a categorical imperative. If I if I dare reference an Enlightenment philosopher. As such, we become mass culture and the platform, the production apparatus. Our profiles are made by us, but not with tools of our own making. Our search results are crowd-made, but in the image reflected in platform and its triangulations of what counts as valuable, useful, interesting, etc. The skepticism of science and technology studies or any critical enterprise that interrogates any claims, any absolute claims of any system, technological or scientific, that says we know what is the case, should be brought to bear on this kind of artifice. Power lurks in epistemology. An algorithm is epistemology, ultimately, I think. To the extent that social media capture, this is my conclusion now, so what? To the extent that social media capture, they recruit, fix, convert, they do so in a manner that reproduces and reinforces a type of cultural production a particular type of self configured by fixation for conversion. 
The broader point is that once this, this system is in place and continues to reinforce those arrangements, it will continue begging, them, begging a certain kind of participation from us and leaking those practices to other worlds that are outside the realm of social media. At such points, social processes removed from whatever social media may be, right, are confronted with arrangements born in the ether. We assume connectivity and feel displaced without it. We are habitually never alone. We are the searching for network function and become accustomed to being reified and captured. Say what you may, the structure of how we are socially has changed in many respects since we started liking, tweeting, right, updating. We may have made some facets of social media are our own through adaptation and appropriation of features and alternative, and alternative uses, but conversion systems care little of that. It's all part of that bet, of the bet that, in the process of digital cultural production, through capture, everyone and anyone can be pinned and sold to somebody. And that's it. So I'll take a... Any questions if you have them? Sure. Um, so I have one hopefully constructive. Uh, but we have a microphone. Thank yeah. We're recording. Hooray. Oh. So my name is Chris Peterson. Uh, I'm a grad student here. Um, so one hopefully constructive comment and then a question. Mm -hmm. um, the hopefully constructive comment is that I don't buy the matrix metaphor. <laughs> it seems to me to be reversed okay. um, because the point with the matrix is that everybody is already stuck in it and then a few are enlightened and escape, which seems to be exactly what you're saying can't happen on Facebook because we're all involuntarily enrolled in it mm -hmm. because of our friends. Okay. Um, I do like the web metaphor for that because it kind of says you're you know going around and then you get stuck in it. And what I wanted to ask you about was... Um, this getting stuck quality and what it suggests about networks. Um, you know, so there's this one narrative of social network sites that you progress from Friendster to MySpace and Facebook, and you don't need to regulate when these problems exist because they die out, you know, and, and they get outcompeted and a new one will arise with, with better deals with these problems. But there's also this profound experience where people try to leave Facebook or want to leave Facebook and don't feel that they can. Mm. Um, and I'm I'm wondering what you think, how you think that effect works. Is it just simply a very powerful network effect, or could there be something um, to make a, an analogy to gravity, like a, a sort of event horizon that's caused by sufficiently large numbers of Metcalfe's law, where you get enrolled and really stuck in these networks in a way that doesn't ever change at a sufficiently large number of nodes. Yeah, um, I. Thank you for the, the comment on, on The Matrix. I just thought it was a snappy title, so uh, maybe I should have reflected more. But, I, you know, maybe it's just looking at the glass half full or half empty, but we will definitely take that. Um, on, the other qu on the question, I think it is sort of a triangulation of experiences, right? That, um, that it is this sort of social force, and to use gravity again, it's an orbit, maybe. Maybe not like an event horizon or the moment before a singular, like all that. It's just this moment of gravity where you find yourself, when you try to leave, you didn't know it was there, right? You were sort of embedded and meshed in this net, interacting maybe sometimes, maybe not. But then when you try to leave, you are reminded of all the various things that, that you built there, right? And so it is, in another, in another instance, maybe a reification of your work, 
right, of your social labor that you've got, they, they just show you, look at all the work that you've done to be part of this group, right? Are you going to leave it? Um, but I think it's a lot, in those, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. I, I think the, the platform speaks in million, in so many words, right? In text, in images, in sounds. And so it's, I think I'm getting to your question that it's not just one thing. What's happening is you're sort of being asked to flash back, right, to that. It's almost like dying, right? You're flat, they, make you, they make your life flash before your eyes. And so what you do is you consider your friend's kids, your friendships. Who did you forget to tell that you were going to quit so they're not offended later on, which is what happened. I, started, I got all these emails saying, why did, you un, why did you unfriend me? Why did you block me? I'm like, no, I just quit. I just forgot to tell you so it's this really interesting triangulation of, of a lot of what of very sociological, right? Ultimately, really sociological processes. Reciprocity, right? Reciprocity is basic. Someone gives you a flower, you want to give them a buck, right? Um, it's incredibly strong. So someone makes a connection with you, you want to connect back, uh, but at the same time, someone breaks a connection, and you can sense that they're going to they're going to feel it. So they're deploying all of that together. I think. So so just do you think that that effect that you're describing takes on a different character at a sufficiently large size other than just scaling up? Or do you think... I think it's, yeah, I think it's quantitatively defined and qualitatively defined. So you can have, like, you can be the kind of person who likes to have, mil- you know, all these points, right, associated with you. And that can be costly. Or you can look at the point, at certain points that are associated with you and say those are really valuable points, right? So that's a qualitative measure, subjective, right? It's not just like I counted a thousand links, right? It's, there's a thousand links, but a hundred of those are incredibly important. When I quit, uh, when I've deleted my profile, I didn't go, th- I, I, I sensed all of this, right? But I was doing it, at, I'll, I'll come clean, I was doing it at a, at a conference and to illustrate the point, right? Uh, and then everyone got to witness sort of this moment of, of anguish. But, but yes, it's, I think it's both. It's a qualitative and quantitative, and it's subjective. It depends on who you are and what you've experienced over the course of that participation, right? Over there next. Yeah. No, he's going, and then I was just giving a little cue order so that we know. Go ahead. Um, yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed the talk on a lot of levels. Um, I had a couple sort of interrelated questions. Um, so you talked a lot about how the agents of a system can be human. Um, you also talked about the ways that a network can work as this sort of interpolating system that in turn reshapes the social. Um, but I was wondering what you had to say about um, a, like a more specific kind of non-human agent, like semi-autonomous software agents, that um, they often do all the work of capture, right? They allow it to be more holistic. They operate at these sort of vast non-human scales. Um, so I'm just wondering how you think about the notion, these notions of scales and how they might differ from earlier forms of surveillance before the Internet mm-hmm. is my first question. Um, and then um, in a related vein, um, you talked a lot about the sort of sub-interface aspects of capture, so which exists below the level of human perception in code and algorithms. So um, I'm wondering what you think the work of the cultural critic is in such a a context. Um, Like, do humanists need to be able to read code or analyze integrated chips in in, in order to um, reveal the operations of ideology? Um, Okay, so let me... 
I'll start backwards. I'll start with the last question. And I think I might need you to reiterate the first one, but let's yeah, begin yeah. with the second one. Um, I think humanists need to do what they've always been doing, um, which is to look at the ways in which, in which how we experience life qualitatively, right? The things that are beautiful about life, the things that are that impassion us, right? The poetry of life. And, and not only that, but our place in the historical narrative, right? I think that, that the idea that any computational system, any technology exists outside of that particular frame of analysis is a fallacy. Um, do we need to read code? No. Would we, would we be better off if we could read code? Maybe. I'd have to see what a humanist does with that, uh, with that uh, ability. But I think what, what we can do is look at practice, right? Look at, look at sort of um, the elegance of, or the inelegance of that practice, right? In the context of these technologies that are sort of flowing around, right? And like maybe they're in the web, right? And so we're just kind of wet, moving our way through a tangle of webs. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question necessarily. I think what that perspective brings is uh, an estrangement with data. And I think that's really important. I think that any time someone tells you something about yourself, you should feel oddly at all, you know, oddly weird about it. Even though it's, you may think it's accurate, I think there's something about self-determination that is really key to confronting an algorithm as it gives you a narrative about you and yours. Because ultimately what they're doing is they're aggregating huge amounts of data to say, this is this, pers- this, is this type of person. But I, don't, I think that the humanistic tradition can tell us something deeper and confound that. Um, and I think that's why I wanted Google to sometimes just have an impression of who we are. <laughs> because, because I think we should confound the algorithm. Um, now your, second, your first question, could you just, yeah. Yeah, um, it was just sort of a really long-winded way of um, asking, do you see a a huge difference between sort of earlier forms of surveillance that existed before the Internet and which, uh, in relation to things that do exist, uh, sorts of of surveillance that do exist on the Internet and how they're enabled by um, sort of the automation of systems and how like automated semi-autonomous software agents just sort of all over the web doing the work of capture that was previously done by human beings. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm always loath to say we are in a qualitatively different age, right? Um, Because, you know, some historian will always just raise their hand and go, no, we're really not, right? Uh, And they'll they'll usually make a reasonable argument as to why we're not and they'll have to be like, okay, right? what I want to say about that is that there are qualitatively different elements of that process of, let's say, surveillance, where it's not just like surveillance, right? It's a practice of participation embedded in an architecture within which surveillance is a possibility, right? Where privacy is at play, where you as a product, because you're being transferred to data, can be traded in market, right? So it's not that there is more surveillance or less surveillance. Is that you're right that these invisible systems that are meant to um, that are meant to lubricate the experience, right, to make us skate through it, uh, are in effect doing a lot of work uh, to triangulate, to configure you in a lot of ways, and maybe 
that's categorically different from someone collecting mass amounts of data, let's say at a census or taking a census and a census data and trying to make sense of something out of it. Uh, so I think maybe the tools have changed, but the intent maybe is the same. Uh, yes, did you have a qu you had a question over there? Yeah, okay. Um, so I have a somewhat similar question, I think. So I, I like the sort of the three the th the three step recruitment fixation conversion uh, sort of mechanism that you outlined. What I what I was wondering if you could bring out was I mean one could see the same mechanism for say mass television, for instance, which also draws you in uh, in some sense recruits you makes you fixate on it, and then sort of converts it into value, which is advertising dollars. Right. Uh, you could say the same thing about Hollywood films, which again have the same kind of strategy. And it, so I was sort of trying to figure out where, what would you say is the difference is between sort of social media platforms and other forms of mass entertainment, which seem to me, so you could say this three-step uh, mechanism might apply to pretty much all of capitalism itself, if you will. And so I was kind of wondering if you wanted to maybe show why social media, which you sort of brought out, is why is it qualitatively different from, say, television or cinema or some other form? Of um, sure. Mass I mean, uh, you know, when I, when I wrote this presentation, I, that moment where I said we're all laboring, you know, I thought of Suit Jolly, right, who said, you know, the laboring audience and had to so called attention to the political economy of being an audience, right? Um, but I think the qualitatively difference, the qualitative difference was actually born at a, at a theoretical concept that was born here at MIT, which is participatory culture, right? That there is a political economy to participatory culture. Um, that there's a positive side to that, of course, right? But then there's also this sort of incorporation of that. Now, when Henry Jenkins talked about it, he was talking about you know, f fans, but he's progressed his thinking to, to also incorporate the kinds of UGC that, ha that is you know, prevalent in, in, in audiences today. Um, I think what's qualitatively different then is that this political economy of participation is, is, um, is a quanta. So in other words, it's a heck of a thing to just watch a commercial, right, and be that data set that saw that ad and then sort of Nielsen knows you were there. But it's a whole other, other thing to be an aggregate, right, a member of the one billion people who are, uh, or one billion or so people who are on Facebook, right? Uh, that makes it sort of, that's, that's now a big data issue, right? Uh, the valuation of Tremendous amounts of information, right, of participation. Those mutterings and stutterings, every little thing, incidental. I mean, you know, people tweet about anything, right? It's all data. Um, and I think it's, it's so totalizing that there, that's what I think is qualitatively different, right? It's not bounded. I tell my students, they used to want prime time. Now they want poop time, right? And what I mean is they want, your, they want you participating whenever, they don't want you at 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock. They want you when you're on the train. They want you when they're in the bathroom, when you're in the bathroom. They want you when you have those five minutes standing in line. They want you to pull that out and go at Starbucks, waiting for 10 out, waiting for what seems like an eternity. They've, they want to capture those elements of time. It is sort of that model, but then qualitatively different. And I hope 
the potty humor doesn't fall too flat, but yeah, that's what I tell my students, but you know, <laughs> they, they don't like it either. Yes, any questions? Others? So when you were talking about um, you know kind of the agency of, of non-human actors, these these large systems, um, the way in which they kind of uh, get us to do things, um, at Langdon Winter, the way that values are built into them, your references to Gillespie, I kept on thinking there's like a lot of Latour in this, mm -hmm. or or it's very similar to it. Mm -hmm. But one of the other things is that Latour is really opposed to talking about reification, to talking about, to using the social to explain the social, mm -hmm. um, you know, talking about associations as opposed to saying, well, something's always lying behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and it seemed to me that you were um, oscillating back and forth a little bit between those, or maybe taking some from one view and some from another. And as someone who's myself is trying to kind of think through these sorts of things, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how you balance those, how you think of the social being able to explain the social uh, and its relationship to the technology in which it's inscribed. Um, I think it's a difficult, um, well, let me, let me attempt. Uh, I think it's a difficult process, mostly because, um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the question, I, so here, I'm going to answer the question I think I heard, and if I'm not, sure. just be like, no, that's not what I was asking. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a heck of a thing to assume the privileged position in the system that you are trying to study, right? And I think this is what we do, right? That we're trying to study a social process and then ourselves are embedded in the social process. So how do you use the social to understand the social? And I think it's the best that I can do is that, well, you have to, right? Um, you, have no, you have no epistemological exit. There's no, there's no like, you know, emergency phone call you can make. We're ultimately humans, right, embedded in these systems, and so you have to use the language that you have. If I was a Martian, maybe I'd be better off to analyze the social system, but I'm not. I'm embedded in it. I think agency is really important. I think um, accountability is important. I think to talk about an artifact without talking about all the people that came together, right, to inscribe that artifact with a value, is um, is pernicious, right? So we have to engage it uh, to balance it. I think I think this is I'm going to use sort of I rely ultimately on the conversation, right? To 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 also create knowledge. So when I was uh, when I had my first job at the University of Utah, my chair said to me, um, "The power of the humanities is that through discourse the world can change. So the conversation we can actually right change the world. Right? Science may tell us, may attempt to tell us what is the case, but through conversation we can figure society. Right? That's part of the power of the humanities. I think that's part, also part of the power of analyzing these systems from a as a." from a social perspective and as social artifacts, right? That through the conversations that we'll have with other people who are interested in that system, we will derive ultimately at some, it's kind of like a crowd knowledge, but not, not quite. It's sort of a discursive enterprise. You'll always be at it. It'll never be, there'll never be a final say, right? The conversation is ongoing. We, you and I will contribute our little piece. And in 10 years, there will be more of that conversation. Hopefully we'll still be relevant. Hopefully we'll still be cited, but maybe not, right? But that's okay. We had our, we had our bit, our bit. Does that make sense in terms of answering that? I don't know if I've done that. Well, it, it does, although the, the problem that I have with, we were talking about kind of the human agency thing, the thing that I've been struggling with, right, is that it seems to me that Latour doesn't say so much that non-human things have agency as much as he says humans don't have agency. Yeah, and that's a problem. And I, and I think, 
what I'm trying to say here is that there is a push and a pull, right? It's, it's always been a, dyna- a dynamic moment. Like my friend tweets what I, right? In that moment, I felt powerless, right? She's a friend of mine. It's not like I was like so upset about it, but there was a, a sense of powerlessness in that moment, uh, in which case I had no agency. Well, I mean, the best that I could do is maybe tweet, I didn't mean it, <laughs> right? Um, but at the same time, that was taken from me by a set of social practices of people who did have agency, right? Uh, who were configured uh, to be those agents. So it's a push and a pull, right? I was apt, right? There was, there was a system that had agency that was, and I was apt that my agency was absent. I don't know if I'm getting at it, but... I think so. I mean, it's a tough question, so... It is, I mean, it's a tough question. I don't, I don't know how to get around it. I just, I figured we just have to describe the moment and then try to figure out theoretically how the technology came to put me in this moment, how I put myself in this moment, and then how I can ultimately respond to that moment, right? And how can people do that as well, as a group? I'm making Jim work hard here. Uh, (laughs) Thanks, Jim. (laughs) So uh, I thought just for fun, uh, I was going to try to uh, revert the capture, fixation, com- conversion. Sounds like fun. <laughs> uh, but I only, I only got to, to the capture part. So I was thinking, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying, but I'm wondering if there's other stories, parallel stories untold. And maybe, uh, maybe actually we have been capturing the technical producers or technological producers as much as they have captured us as social producers or yeah uh, because at some point we s- decided to stop paying for software um, like web browsers <coughs> and uh, then they had to pr- produce something that they still could maybe make money from and uh, recently we decided to stop paying for games and then they have to make Facebook games instead so uh, I'm not sure who is sort of leading whom here and you I do some consulting in in the games industry and they feel pretty powerless uh, because we don't pay for real games anymore so then they have to make something else that they can make money from. Have we, have we caught them? Um, I would, well, I'm going to put on my Marx hat um, and then say, well, no, this is all part of the, of, this is all part of the, of the plan, right? Uh, to, cap, you know, to capture as much of, to commodify everything, to fetishize it, sell it, to create use value, to, you know, so to me, this model or what's going on is like, it's right off, you know, it's right off sort of 101 stuff. But um, I think that the experiences that you're referring to in terms of like these markets, right, these businesses that have to confront a rechanneling of consumer energies or consumers rechanneling their energies, I think it's a different phenomenon. Specifically, I think, maybe in the games industry because, you know, Black Ops 2 just premiered, like, the other day to, like, the biggest release, and again, right? Um, And so 
what's happening, I think, maybe in the games industry is, is, is not necessarily that people are going to other games or not paying for games necessarily, but the industry itself is reconfiguring to do different things. Now, let me make an argument in the game industry for this type of capture. Black Ops 2 has theater mode. Black Ops 1 had theater mode. Black Ops 2, you can actually broadcast live gameplay. You can stream it, right? That's capture. Before, you used to just sit with your buddies, right, and just, you know, drink a lot of Mountain Dew, do whatever, right? But now, it's entertainment. It's been reframed, reconfigured, refixed, right? Fixed in a certain way. Play is now fixed as entertainment. And it started with YouTube commentators who made the market happen. They created it through their practice. And then Microsoft just changed its, uh, and T.L. Taylor is, is, is working on this, right? Microsoft just changed its, um, its copyright policy, so you can't make Halo 4 videos. They're going to they're gonna whack you on YouTube for copyright violation, right? So, so I think what's happening, what you're seeing of these market shifts are actually internal machinations, right, to reconfigure a mass market. Whether, those, whether our practices capture I don't know. I think what our practices do is maybe force businesses to adjust, right, to try to fit in. But what? But I've seen. Yeah. Well, go ahead. I think that's. My yeah. No. I mean, it still comes from from Microsoft from a point of fear. I think because they feel like people might not necessarily need to buy their next console because there's uh, some Android console being. You know, uh, crowdsourced and, and uh, they they sell their consoles really cheap if you buy a, a two year membership so they're trying to convert it into a service but it's because they're afraid right, right. they wouldn't want to have to do all these things that you're talking about yeah I mean it's just for me something like some something as large as Microsoft right uh, with its I mean it's a right. It's a gigantic enterprise with all kinds of business entities. I, to me, that move in Microsoft to sort of consolidate its claims over its intellectual properties are not necessarily born out of fear, but born out of a a culture of intellectual property that says protect it or lose it, and b an. A sort of a speculation that there is a market on the secondary content, but they just don't know what to do with it yet. And so let's just let's just coordinate this, right? It's like I know there's gold in that mountain, but I don't know where it is, nor do I have the time to exploit it. So I'll just buy the mountain, right? I'll coordinate it off, and you know I'll get to it later, right? Uh, so I think in that case, that's what's happening. Black Ops, the Activision Blizzard has ha- has a different perspective on that, right? They're like, let's go. They created an app inside their game that's just going to let you see what's going on and capture play, right? So let's say you're playing, you have a particularly good game, it's possible for you to just live stream that. I'm having a great game. Let's go, right? And people will watch it. So. Thanks, Hector. Um, I like the slides too. It felt like um, like Aeon Flux was going to step out and <laughs> like grab us. Um, so I have two questions for you. One is I also had um, a sort of Latour type question. Um, and I'm wondering if if when you say affordances, you mean something stronger. Um, sort of question one, and if you can just like reflect on that. Um, 
And then my second is about this idea of estrangement um, and ask you to put your Marx hat back on. And is this, I mean, is this like alienation? Um, And then um, do you think there are potential places like uh, for like what Julie Cohen in that in her book, The Network Self is calling this like semantic gaps where agentic play can happen? I mean, are there places where that can happen? yeah, so let me answer the, the second, the first question first, <laughs> I guess, uh, which was, uh, well, maybe I'll ask the second. I'll answer the second question. I can't remember. You can tell me again. Uh, so, Ju- I've actually had a, I was in, I was invited to read Julie Cohen's book and then post on a blog and then she came in and sort of talked about it and we talked about that concept of semantic discontinuity, right? It's that moment of noise and that's I think what I'm referring to. So I, I sort of posed the idea that. I think people should go out and create face, fake Facebook accounts, right? With all kinds of random information, and just create as much noise as possible so the algorithm is, in fact, conf- confounded, right? And there is this element of resistance that you can't really know us. I think it's so. I kind of posed that question, and it was sort of like, well, yeah, but users are going to do what they're going to do. They're not, right? So, but yes, I think that noise, right, is part of that. But I think it's not something that you necessarily have to do outright, right? Like go out and, and, and confound. I think the nature of being human confounds, right? And it's the moment where we believe, right, that, it's, that it doesn't <laughs> is, is when we lose that humanity. When we, be, when, we, when we start buying that argument, I think, is the problem. I think the resistance is not necessarily buying the argument. is to continuously try to challenge that argument, right, even, in, even as we're part of that network. Now, your first question was about alienation. And, yeah, that's what I thought. But I, I, I didn't think, you know, sort of Marx's concept of alienation was this, sort of this distance from the work, right, from craft to sort of mass production and sort of you, you become alienated from your craft because you're just a cog in the machine. I mean, that's the 101 version of it. Um, I think it is not exactly that, but it kind of, right? Uh, it is that when... The, when you've crafted, let's say, your place in social media, but under the influence in the architecture, right? And when you see the whole, when you put it together and you see the whole, you go, well, that's good. That's who I am. You, you put that picture up you know, and you move on. But you change. And so that estrangement is the, the fact that the, the, that the platform made you object, right? But you are not object, right? And you changed, and return to the object that the platform has made you, and then you revolt, right? Or at least hopefully feel a little bit weird. Um, you see the ads, right? And then that's when strange, right? When these ads become associated with you, right? And you're like, huh, the gap. Interesting, right? Uh, that's what I think what I mean. It is kind of associated with that sort of labor. You labored on this thing, and now, but also it's this sort of reconstitution of yourself of an object that is, was you maybe yesterday, but not today, right? Um, I hope that, that's, it's not exactly alienation, it's related, um, but it really is um, a reevaluation of yourself through somebody else's lens, even though you were embedded in that lens, right? Even though you were the one taking part of, right? Pushing that image through that lens, um, the lens makes you object and then that's when the moment becomes strange.